All right, welcome back. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. We're in studio in downtown Salem today, and we're actually all in studio. So co-host Salam Noor is in studio today, and our, our guest, actually second time guest on the show, Chad Ford, is also in studio. This is kind of fun. We're all able to be here. It is. Yes. Nice to see people. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Chad, you said this is your first time out of Hawaii since... It all started, quarantine all started back a year ago, right? Yeah, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's invigorating. It's exciting. You know, we talk about see people and it's like literally like seeing people is, is great in this context. So. Yeah, it's fun. Well, I want to just jump in to this episode. Um, you know, Chad's been a guest before. And so if you've listened to that episode with him, um, you, you've heard from him. Um, and, uh, you know... I, I introduce him there and, and, and speak about him a little bit uh, before, but I'll, I'll do it again for any new listeners. You know, Chad, Chad is a, a, a close friend and, and mentor to me. Um, you know, he was a, a professor to me, but more so a friend um, when I was in my undergraduate degree in, at BYU-Hawaii studying peace building. Um, and that's where I was able to, to meet him and, and take his courses, but also work with him in the peace building center out there. And Chad is... You know, uh, he's he's a humble individual. He's done so much work all over the world uh, when it comes to conflict um, engagement and peace building. He's worked in Israel um, between the Palestinian and, and Israeli conflict uh, for many years. Um, he's worked in uh, Northern Ireland. He's, uh, I mean, I I could make a list of all the places he's been when he's where he's engaged in in very heavy, long lasting conflict. He's also worked quite a bit in the the U.S. with gang violence. Um, and his, his, his track record is, is vast and I could spend a long time on it. Uh, but you know, for me, most importantly, he's, he's shared insight with me. Um, and if you remember back to that episode where he was on before, where he's, he said a few very vital words to me at, at the right time in the right place coming from the right person that changed my life. So it's, uh, he means a lot to me and I'm, I'm just thankful that he's here today. Um, and I'm excited for what we can what we can dive into. So Chad, again, thanks for, for being out here. And, and, you know, I always mention, I always put in the plug that this, this podcast is part of our Groundwork Leadership Institute. And he's actually out here right now because he's, he's our guest speaker today for our, our uh, cohort, our leaders uh, today. And we're actually going to head over to, to the venue after this, this episode. So that's why he's here visiting. Um, so again, Chad, thanks for being here. Super excited. Uh, to be back and the work that you're doing here in Salem. It's, it's part of what I hope is a model for a lot of communities to think about how do we tackle the multitude of, of challenges that we face in a community. I think in many ways, the work that you're doing is quite unique in that way and how you're approaching it and, uh, and then the impact that you're able to, to be able to drive after this. And so I, I hope that there's a lot of other um, communities and organizations and nonprofits that are studying what you're doing, because I think that the, we face so many challenges in our communities and the approach that you're taking, I think is a long-term sustainable transformative approach that is going to pay off huge dividends in Salem. And there's just so many other communities that we could, we could talk about and list that, that need that same work. Yeah. Um, that's our hope for sure. Absolutely. And, and, um, Thank you for being here, first of all, and um, and I'm really excited just to be in the same room with you. And and um, 
I actually listened to the podcast again this morning that Chris did with you. And I've been thinking a lot about your book, Dangerous Love. So since you started or you led with this with this notion of what we're doing in the community, it's transformative. Hopefully it can be a model for others to learn from and replicate. I'd love for you to talk about it in the context of dangerous love, because some may say it's unique because it is dangerous love. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think that the work that you're doing is what I would categorize as dangerous love, because there's two two big components to dangerous love. One is that my conflict style isn't avoidant. It isn't just lay down and let things happen. It's not competitive. It's truly collaborative. And when we're in conflict, that is the hardest conflict style to actually achieve. In fact, one definition of conflict is that it's our inability to collaboratively solve our problems. And I think especially if you think about communities, people often feel very paralyzed and what they're going to do and how they're going to solve it. It seems like there's so many issues and it's so big. And so a lot of conflict avoidance seeps in, or there's a very an aggressive style where, where someone comes in with a potential solution, if you will, to the problem. And we're going to attack that solution. And whether we're going to use the law to do that, or we're going to use government regulation or um, what have you, we're going to try to transform this on our own where, where your approach is truly collaborative you're working with lots of stakeholders in the community from lots of different places. You're taking ideas from anywhere that you can get them. You're, you're not coming in with a solution to the problem. You're creating space that facilitates a collaborative discussion where lots of different stakeholders can come together and work on that solution together. And, and that to me is, is special. And, and I think it's dangerous because that is an approach that means you're not in control right? You're creating space for others, but you have to show up in this space and be open and vulnerable and, and think deeply about what other people are saying. It means you have to go back to your benefactor, Mountain West and other people and, and, and pitch ideas that might not have been the ideas that they had originally uh, coming back. And you just have to engage at a very human level with lots of different people in a way that I, I think it's for people that want to control conflict, it's easier just to have a game plan and go out and, and execute it as opposed to creating the space that you're done. And it's love because one of the things that I've noticed, and I haven't spent a lot of time with you, but I was able to uh, spend some time uh, last night um, with a group of people. And uh, last year I was able to do some Zoom calls and and interacting with high school students that are are part of the plan you know, here at Mountain West and, and got to meet Drew and uh, you know, one of the high school teachers that's really sort of taken this on. One of the characteristics that that I experienced in all of this is that it's love. And when I when I say love, it's not that you're romantically attracted to each other. I think that's obvious. That's not there. And it's not just that you're with a bunch of people that you like. And the the reason that you're all together is I just like all these people. And so we're all hanging out together because we like each other. It's something much different. It's a deeper commitment that says, I see your needs, wants, and desires as mattering as much to me as my own. Um, it's, it's a sort of love that, you know, the Greeks use the word agape and it's the selfless love. It's, it's a love that is about walking shoulder to shoulder with people through their challenges and their trials and their life journeys together. And, and you, you can experience it and feel it by the way that people talk and see each other in the room. And so just hearing comments last night, 
talking about the people that people were working with. They're talking about each other. There was this discussion last night about beloved community and, and this, this love that people have for the community and the various people that are the stakeholders that are coming in. And, and I can hear that through my lens and say, look, they're not actually necessarily talking about, oh, and we all go hang out with each other, that we like to go on vacations together or, you know, that we like each other. It's that we love that there's this group of people that are coming together to try to make a difference um, in this community. And even though we're different and we come at different approaches and different backgrounds and different what have you, we see each other. And we see each other's needs and we're committed to finding solutions that work for everybody. And so that that to me is why this is dangerous um, love. And it's a it's it's really interesting because if it's dispassionate, if it's not that feeling of connectedness that you feel this sort of work is really unsustainable. And, I, and I, you know, I've worked with a lot of students. I've been a university professor for years and and I have so many students that say I'm going to X community and I'm going to change the world and I'm going to come in and do this. And they, they have big ideas. And they have a plan. They come in and 95 percent of the time, what's going to happen is they're going to get there. It's going to get hard. They're going to try to push their agenda. They don't really have a relationship with the community. They're going to get really frustrated that the community isn't going along with all of their ideas or doesn't. Uh, you know, think of them as the sort of savior of their community or whatever. They're going to throw their hands up in the air and with six months, they're going to be gone. And that is the experience of so many people on the ground that live in in troubled communities about what nonprofits do and what conflict resolution is like. These people are going to show up with their money and their big idea. Uh, they're going to try to sell us on a solution to a problem. And then if it doesn't go exactly as they've planned and if if they're not getting all the credit for it, they're gone. And that to me is the opposite of dangerous love, right? If you want to like just contrast the styles, right? That's not dangerous. It's all about control. It's all about coming in, getting credit for it. And it's not love. It's about self. It's, it's, it's ultimately about me and me being able to say, I did this right uh, for the community. And, you know, I, I sort of joke with my young millennials and Gen Z, it's about the Instagram moment. It's about being able to post that thing that everybody's going to be able to punch the likes on and say, oh man, isn't, isn't Chris great? Look at, look at all the stuff that he's doing in the world. And that, that's the opposite of dangerous love because dangerous love is not about me. It's about us. And about us means that I have to hear you and see you and be alive to what you need. It means that I have to be patient and recognize that change doesn't happen overnight and that it takes a lot of people Right. And from a lot of different spaces to make this work. And and, and that's just why, why I'm so excited, uh, Salam, about the approach that you've taken and what I see is a deep rootedness um, in the community with all of the stakeholders that you're bringing to the table and those stakeholders feeling like Drew. And we talked last night that they're part of this. They're not just coming and partaking of something. They're part of this and they're part of the solution to the problem. Yeah, one of our, I appreciate all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, you see it when you walk in our office, but one of our, our benefactors, you know, favorite quotes is, and I have no idea who the original person that said this was, but, you know, you can get a lot done when you don't care about who gets the, the credit. And we, you know, having a leader that, that believes that keeps us on point, you know, keeps us humble and keeps us trying to stay behind the scenes, um, when, when we do our work, but, um, I appreciate, um, what you shared and, you know, what you mentioned when you mentioned love, even though you explained it, you know, what you mean by it, there's a lot of people, uh, that 
would get turned off as soon yeah. as they hear that term. Right? My publisher, one of it that tried to change the title uh, multiple times. I, I remember that. I we remember. were actually in conflict, ironically, over a conflict transformation book <laughs> over the title of the book. And we actually sent a survey out to people because they really want to change it with other names. And luckily, Dangerous Love won. But it was I, I it voted, was it, I voted for it. It was a close race. <laughs> and and people that came back, they and they said, Oh, this sounds really hippie, or it sounds like actually this is about spousal abuse, or I mean there, you know, there was a number of different things. And so um it's a little bit like the word peace in, yeah, in my mind. Big misunderstanding of that word too. Yeah. And uh, you know, Chris knows this story, but when we started our peace building program at the university. No one wanted to call it peace building. They wanted peace out of it. They they're fine with conflict and conflict because that's that sounds macho and tough. And like, eh, yeah, we're you know we're tackling conflict, right? <laughs> but when you sound peace, oh my gosh, that seems soft and touchy feely, yeah. and you know all of these different things. And and to me, I'm like, there's there's fundamentally a misunderstanding about the word peace and and how hard won peace actually is, and how much courage it actually takes to get to peace. And, and it's the same, same idea with love. And part of it is again, the English language being at, as it is where we have one word that means many, many things. And when people hear this, they're thinking of the bachelor, uh, right? That's that, you know, that's, that's, that's love. That's, I don't actually think it actually, the bachelor has love in any, any of its definitions, to be honest. Uh, but you know, we sort of think about that or Valentine's day or what have you, or, um, the sort of love that means like, and so if you go to Greek, you've got actually different words for each of these mm-hmm. things. You have eros, which is sort of romantic love, and philia, which is sort of, you know, the friendship sort of like sort of love that we have. And then, you know, the term agape. And in a lot of other cultures, you'll see that that the language allows for more specific definitions. But we're stuck in English with with love. And, and, and I think that those other sorts of loves are superficial sorts of loves. And they come and go. Uh, and and we're addicted to them in part because of what they do for us, right? And so that that initial rush of feeling attraction towards someone or that, you know, that sort of honeymoon phase of of that, we die for that. We want that so much. So many of my couples work is we don't feel that towards each other anymore, which most people don't. It goes away, right? It's a it's a fleeting sort of endorphin-fueled um emotion that comes like a drug towards us. And then when it goes away. We're like, oh, that we made a mistake. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be together anymore. We we have differences now, um, and and I don't feel that initial rush, and so it falls away. And so that's to me, it's shallow, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not very sustainable. And the same thing about like, look, as long as you are meeting my needs, as long as you're checking in on me all the time, as long as you take me to do cool things, as long as you remember my birthday, as long as we agree on the same movies and where to go at the same restaurants or whatever, I love you. I love being around you, man. It's so awesome. It's so great. And actually, when I say that, I, I know this sounds crass, but what I'm actually saying is I love me. And, and the thing I love about you is that you love you, me. You love me yeah. Right. And I, and I love that. I love the way that you see and take care of me. And so when that changes, because look, as human beings, sometimes we're pretty selfish, right? Mm-hmm. Just even that statement is pretty selfish. So the minute that Chris chooses Chris over me, those sorts of loves make a run for it, right? They're, they're gone. And now oh, I can't believe Chris isn't choosing me over me. Everybody knows that me 
is the ultimate goal of, of everything else is what falls apart. And this is why relationships and communities really struggle, because if we're all like minded and we're all on the same page about everything and we all share the same values, then we're probably not going to experience a lot of high level conflict um, with each other. Everything's going to kind of go well. And look, it's OK to have easy relationships like that. I call that easy love. And, and it's OK to have those. I don't think there's anything wrong with those sorts of loves. But there's nothing lasting or sustainable um, about that. And I contrast it with the sort of love that often parents feel for their children. Right. Uh, And, you know, for our listeners at home that have had children, they know that children are this wonderful thing and they're also a massive pain in the butt. And they dramatically turn your life upside down right away without giving a lot back in return. You're going to lose sleep. You're going to be changing diapers. Nobody wakes up in the morning and say, you know what I can't wait to do today? is change a poopy diaper. Like, you know, nobody, nobody wants to do that. As they get older, I'm helping with homework. I'm driving around. And then heaven forbid when they get to teenagers uh, and they think they're adults and that all other adults are stupid um, are around them mm-hmm. and, and they're, you know, they're pushing back. It's really, really hard. But, but most parents have this deep and abiding commitment to those children to see their success and to see them grow up to be the sort of people Um, that they ultimately can be, they're deeply invested in that. They're invested in time. They're invested in money. They're invested in sleepless nights, um, you know, problem solving, all those sorts of things, because I feel and care for them that deeply. That's a different sort of love. And I've heard this from parents all the time and it it, it bothers kids when they hear it. So luckily I don't think my kids will be listening to this podcast. I'll hear parents say all the time. I love my kids, but I don't like them sometimes. Uh, Right. And I, I love that. Right. Because it means that that love can be felt outside of just self-interest. It means that I can experience this this emotion towards people, regardless of how you see me back, mm-hmm. regardless of what you do for me, because I can appreciate your humanity and that your life journey is meaningful to you and impactful to you and other people in your life. And that that is what moves me. Right. It's the actual humanity. Um, of the person uh, that moves me. And so there's nothing soft about that, that sort of love far, far from it, right? That is the hardest sort of thing that we do in our life is love people despite, right? right? right. Despite the differences, despite the things that are frustrating for us. And, and for many of us, that's really hard to do. And, and when conflict rears its head, we, we run away or right. we just try to dominate the other person um, to get back. And so that's, when I'm saying love, that's the sort of word that I'm talking about. But I want to reclaim that word because I actually think it's really important because it's not going to be enough to solve problems to coexist together or to, I hear like co- coexistence or tolerance um, or a lot or just to acknowledge your humanity. It's it actually takes more than that. I have to feel your humanity. Your, your humanity has to to move me in some ways to act in not just in self-interest, but in us interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If I can just build on that really quickly. And, and um, I, I love everything that you said. I, I wanted to ask you about courage in this context, because love requires that I am vulnerable. In the rooted framework, we talk about humility and we talk about pride. But if we bring it to a basic human level, um, to love is to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's hard to to love and be 
vulnerable and on the receiving end of what you may anticipate will happen. So this whole notion of touchy-feely, it's scary. I mean, quite frankly, as human beings, even for leaders that are so accomplished and have so much power and influence, you say the word love and and it's threatening, it's intimidating. Um, and it's because I'm being asked to be vulnerable, but I'm also afraid of the unknown. I don't know what I'm going to get. And in conflict, that is so true. And especially the mediation that you did with global conflict, if you will. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's that's such a great comment, um, Salam, uh, because like I get that a lot like, oh, this sounds touchy feely or whatever. And my reaction to it every time is to look the person in the eye and say, and what scares you about that? Because you think about the paradox, of what they're saying now, it's touchy feely. What they mean is this is soft. This isn't hard. This is, it sounds easy or whatever, but at the root of the comment, at the root of the objection of being touchy feely is, is to your point is fear, right? Because what, what is being called for is vulnerability. And I think for people, that is one of the scariest things that you can ask them to do. Uh, We talk uh, a bit in the book, book about this idea of turning first. And the idea is that if two people are not seeing each other as people, they're seeing each other as objects, each of us is going to look at the other person and says, well, when you see me as a person, then I'll see you back as a person, uh, right? If, but of course, both sides are saying that and, and nobody changes. And so this idea of turning first is I'm going to be the first person to turn and see you as a person. And when people hear that and process it, sometimes they don't process it with much objection because what they actually hear through their lenses is, okay. So I'm going to turn first. And when I say, when you say turn first, I'm going to get in front of this person and convince them to see me as a person. And then they'll see me as a person. And then I have the, the safe runway, right? To see them back as a person. And that's not actually what I mean at all. It means turning to that, turning and seeing them regardless of how they're going to see you without expectation even. And that's a really hard thing that they're going to turn and see you back, which means that I might get hurt in this process. I've turned towards people before sincerely out of deep love towards them and they haven't turned back. Um, they, they still turn the other way. Um, they won't see me back. They won't acknowledge um, that move that the pain that they're feeling um, is so strong in the moment that they're not ready to make that move. And when that happens, it hurts when that happens, my first instinct is to turn back around and start elbowing them again and saying, see, you're the problem because I just made this huge grand gesture. This, I just did this big, scary thing and you didn't do anything back in return. So therefore, this is you and you're the actual problem there. And so I think that that, that fundamental objection to this sounds soft or whatever is deeply actually rooted in the first thing that we talk about in our book about fear. What will happen to me? If I do this thing, um, right. And, and what dangerous love asks is reverses the question and asks instead, what will happen to us if we don't? Right. And that requires a level of courage and a level of commitment to us, whether we're talking about a family or a relationship or community um, that recognizes that, yes, this may be hard. Yes, this may be scary. Yes. I might feel pain um, because of this. There'll be casualties 
along the way in dangerous love and that I'm going to get scuffed knees and be exhausted and my feelings might get hurt and all of that stuff. But if I don't do this thing, we are on a path that is unsustainable. We are on a path that's going to lead to our mutual destruction uh, together. And so therefore I have the courage to walk this path. I want to just build off that last comment about we're on a path that's going to lead to to ultimately destruction, right, of some kind, um, because the opposite of that would be success, right? The opposite of that would be, you know, uh, a plethora of, of positive things. And so could, could you speak to that a little bit? Because, you know, what's on my mind right now is, you know, some practical research that we're doing right now in the community is with three different entities and our rooted leadership, our rooted framework is one of, is our variable that we have control of, right? Our hypothesis is essentially implementation of this framework will lead to your organizational change and success. And so we believe that it, it's going to impact um, uh, their results in a positive way. The opposite of that would, you know, we could also say is it's going to prevent you from, you know, destruction. That's a powerful word, destruction, right? It's not like they're going to literally fall apart and be destroyed, but uh, but there is there is some essence of that, right? Is is if we if we don't um, address these things, that's why organizations you know don't last. I was just doing research, um, you know, for a paper I was writing the other day. It's like 80 percent of organizational change efforts don't work, um, and and they don't when when they don't work, it means that the lifespan of organizations aren't actually that long. Um, and so, just purely from an organizational space. Um, you know this this matters, but we're just so you know to provide more context. We're working with a a for profit entity, a nonprofit, and um, a school, uh, and different different methods of of approaching those those um, organizations. But uh, you know we want to see that this framework can work in in every in all of those environments. It all leads to our ultimate goal is how do we create like we've been talking about a community change, a community transformation, and. Uh, you know, maybe this is me and, and in the context of working in, in such high level violent conflict that I've seen, destruction doesn't feel hyperbolic to me. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say that, like I work with Israeli Palestinians, Israelis went through the Holocaust, uh, right? Many of those, those Israelis, they went through the Holocaust. I can't think of something that has been more disruptive and destructive than that. Palestinians went through the Nakba. Uh, it was just uh, maybe today, um, right? Uh, which is Israeli Independence Day, um, but Nakba means salam. What does it mean? It's the destruction. It's I mean, it's catastrophe. Catastrophe, yeah. right? The, so on one day, you have the Israelis celebrating mm-hmm. essentially their Fourth of July, mm-hmm. um, right? The the founding of the state, while Palestinians are celebrating if you want to use that term, uh, the, the Nakba, um, this catastrophe, this destruction, and the millions of people that have been displaced, um, because of that, the, the, the myriad of other economic, social, um, physical, um, destruction that has happened, um, because of this element. And to say that like both of those people are living in a traumatic trauma filled life, um, because of these issues, I, I I don't think it's hyperbolic. And I look at our own, own country, our own United country. States, and it's clear to me, at least as somebody who does this sort of work, what path we're on yeah. right now. 
we might not be there yet and people might feel like, well, I'm going to be I'm, I'm going to die before we get there. And by the way, I'm not so sure you will, um, because these things tend to speed up um, at the end. Um, but in this this massive sort of disconnect um, that if we keep doing the same thing that we're doing, uh, we are sowing the seeds of our, our own destruction. And it, whether that means that it's going to end up with a family falling apart or a community falling apart. And, and you know, in many of these communities, whether they want to say it or not, they're failed states. Uh, they they have failed in the fundamental ways that communities are supposed to function. They are not providing people with safety. They're not providing people with opportunity um, anymore. Um, and because of that, there's there's all this pain. And yes, some people don't experience it the same way because some people are able to to get by. Um, right economically without suffering the sort of consequences of this but even they i would argue are deeply connected mm-hmm. in ways that it, it comes back the chickens come home to roost they might not come home <laughs> in day one or day two um, but they come back and so i actually think it's really important one of the first things i do when i work with people is i'll, I'll sort of set up okay here's how i think we want to try to work together we're going to try to do this differently and inevitably they revert back to their old habits mm-hmm. um, right of either conflict avoidance or competition or whatever and when they do i let it go on for a little bit as a mediator yeah. and i stop them and i ask them so can is this how it kind of looks most of the time like when i'm not here is this sort of what it looks like because it'll look different with different people depending on their conflict styles and they'll yes this look okay so help me understand this for a minute you're paying me to come in and work with you. And we're going back and doing the exact same thing that you've been doing for weeks, months, or years. How has that gone for you? And they're like, it's gone terribly. We wouldn't be here with you if it wasn't. So why are we doing the same thing again? The same thing that's caused us these problems in the past. And and the the answer is, I just don't know a different way. And in some cases, literally our neural pathways have been developed in in a way that only allows us sort of these reactions to that. And so it's really about sort of shifting, shifting mindset. So the destructive path is important, but then you also have to give people the understanding of what the opportunity is um, that's there. And, and we call this in the book, the difference between sort of smog thinking and, and cocoon thinking about, about conflict, that conflict doesn't have to be a negative. It doesn't have to be destructive. It can also be constructive and, and positive. And that when I actually have a few tools, this is my pitch, by the way, to all my students that stay conflict resolution. I don't actually care what profession you end up going into. I, I actually really don't as a, a professor. You can go to business or whatever it is that you're going to do. These skills will save your life and your organization, right? Because it doesn't, at the end of the day, great organizations collaborate. <laughs> great organizations are great at problem solving. When problems come their way, and they inevitably will, Right. Our ability to look at this problem through multiple perspectives, to see all of the stakeholders involved, to actually feel and hold their needs and wants and desires as equal to our own leads to the best possible solutions, the long lasting solutions that that really matter. And I, I think that that innovation and creativity and all of this stuff comes from openness and an outward mindset, not inward mindset. Um, and, and fear. And so I, I never met a, a CEO or an organizational leader that says that I, we don't want to be collaborative or we don't want to be innovative or we don't want to be creative or that we don't want to produce something and, and give it to the world that is unique and special and the best that it is. 
And, and that stuff doesn't happen without collaboration. And, you know, one of the greatest stories about this um, that I use in the business sense is Steve Jobs, uh, who was the, you know, founder, co-founder of Apple. And what a lot of people don't know is Steve Jobs lost his job. For about 10 years, he did not work um, for Apple. And the reason that Steve Jobs didn't work for Apple was because he was the least collaborative person on the planet. When Steve Jobs had an idea in his brain, it was his way or the highway. And he ended up building these computers that were so expensive to build and so outside the market that people could have that they were awesome. Uh, Like the Lisa is the sort of joke. It was an awesome computer that no one could afford um, and that was completely impractical because Steve Jobs wouldn't allow any other perspective in um, other than his own. He built a computer for himself is what he built, but there weren't a lot of Steve Jobs <laughs> Jobses in the world. And, yeah. and ultimately people just couldn't deal with him anymore. And he was out of his own company. Um, and that 10 year journey for him before he comes back to Apple is, is a, a training ground and a proving ground for him that yes, he's brilliant. Yes. He has all these ideas. Um, but if he's not collaborative, uh, in his approach, he's not going to be successful. And of course he becomes one of the great success stories um, of our time about what happens with the second round of Apple and what a dominating um, company it is now. And some evidence of that is that Steve Jobs has passed away and Apple is still dominating um, because there was a culture and something put in place now um, that really matters. And so peace pays uh, in a lot of ways, like collaborate that, that taking this approach to conflict is going to help your bottom line. It's going to help the people in your organization um, it's going to produce huge wins for you as well. It's not just that I'm going to avoid this very terrible outcome. Yeah, the soil was proved to be more important than any brilliant seed. You know, for Apple is what you know is essentially true. Yeah. true what you're getting at. So, um, you know, I was thinking about your uh, podcast that you do. It's called the Dangerous Love Podcast, correct? Yeah. Um, you've had an array of of different guests, um, but how has that uh contributed to you know the, how, how you talk about dangerous love how you think about dangerous love um you know what have you what have you learned and, and taken away from those conversations around it because a lot of them are very focused in different areas based on your guest obviously but i'm just curious to how that's uh expanded your thinking around dangerous love what i wanted to do with the podcast um was bring together a lot of voices from a lot of different spaces because what what one of the reactions that I get to the book is, okay, this may work in these particular stories, but it's not going to work in my, my situation. This won't work at my school or this won't work at my organization um, or what have you. And, you know, you have a limited amount of space in a book to describe sort of every situation. And, and this, the story is going to be quite condensed. It's going to be a couple of pages in a book before we sort of move on. And so to have these more in-depth conversations with everybody, including therapists that are working um, with married couples, uh, to police officers, to people that are working in organizational um, change and development, um, all the way up to people that have worked like in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, um, or working on the, the racial divide here in the United States. The whole idea was to get into a deeper conversation with them about how Dangerous Love applies in this context that we can explore uh, more deeply. And, and again, why do, why do people dismiss it so quickly? And I, I think the reason they dismiss it is 
we're actually asking for something hard here, right? Something that, as you said, is going to require vulnerability. We're going to require change. It's going to require me to do something. And I think our dream in conflict is that other people will do that work and, and it will change. And I can sort of sail in on, on their work. And, um, you know, I just got an, I just got an email, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, a, a week ago who thanked me for my book because their spouse read it and because their spouse read it, their spouse had sort of made all of these sort of changes and that their life was better. And I, you know, I'm reading this and I'm like, Okay, I tend to I tend to answer these emails and I I feel like most of the time my answer is not what people are expecting <laughs> that they're going to get back and I'm like that's really great. Do you think your spouse would write the same email that you wrote um about her <laughs> um about you back to me? And if the answer is no, um then this isn't going to work, right? Um because it's great that she's taken us and and turn in dangerous love and you can and you're benefiting from that and that's 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 really cool but if that doesn't ultimately inspire you to turn to, towards her my guess is for most people that's going to be you know that's going to be a little bit yeah. um, unsustainable um, down the road and so there's this there's there's this thing where i just want a conflict mm-hmm. to resolve itself in a way that requires the least amount of effort or, or danger mm-hmm. from me, because that feels so much safer. And so when people are reading the book, what they're, what's happening is there, there's this pushback, this dissonance that's going on that says, there's got to be another way. There's got to be, mm-hmm. there's got to be another solution to this that, right. that would matter that doesn't put me on the hook or the solution is impossible. Cause I also hear that a lot. You just don't know my spouse the way that I know my spouse. You don't know my boss um, the way that I know my, yes, I understand that you're talking about working with Hamas or whatever, mm-hmm. but trust me, my 18 year old is way worse than Hamas. <laughs> uh, right. Like it's, it's way worse than this. Right. Yeah. And, and that's really natural, right? Because that fear and that, that, that requirement of vulnerability is coming up. And that's, that's why the first half of the book is really stuck on overcoming my fear of conflict and overcoming my fear of others in conflict. Because if I can't let go of that, I'm never going to turn first right. or do reconciliation. Right. I'm I'm curious um, about the role of leaders, if you will, or maybe we should talk about leadership in an abstract sense. But when we think of organizations and communities and our rooted framework, it is really focused on leaders for the most part. Um, I'm just curious about their responsibility for cultivating this idea of dangerous love. And how do you sustain it after that leader takes on a different role or moves on? What are the essential requirements or or ingredients for sustaining these concepts so they become you know part of the culture of an organization yes you know i i've had two very polar opposite um experiences coaching leaders in in big organizations and i i won't name the organizations here but one was a a restaurant organization that was a, a big national sort of organization who came who read um, the Arbinger books um, and and came and said, I want everybody in my organization to be like this, right? And could never, ever get beyond that, right? This is a book for them. This is a culture for them. And resisted 
constantly the the uh, the ask the invitations to say this will work for them when it's woven into the fabric of your life, um, right? Uh, because there's a problem with leadership a lot of times that the the whole idea of being a leader and the label of it puts me above other people, right? By the very nature or structure right. of the organization or right. whatever, I am above. Um, and I've earned this position somehow because of my, my great decisions or because of uh, personality traits or whatever that I have. And so I exempt myself from the very principles that I want my organization to hold. That those values are really deeply important to me as long as you're living them, but I'm, I exempt myself from mm-hmm. them sometimes. I have suffered from the same thing. When I encountered this work for the first time, uh, and it was Arbinger and the Anatomy of Peace, and I listened through it, there was this exercise where um, I was supposed to pick someone who uh, that I was in the box with. That's the term that they right. use. I've seen someone as an object. Um, and I, there was a list of, of family types of personal relationships and of work relationships. And as I went through the list, I didn't circle anybody. What, what I thought to myself is, oh, they're in the box with me. They need to be in this workshop. Like one by one, I could go down and I could tell you how they weren't seeing me as a person and how they had a problem or what have you. And so the facilitator comes to me and uh, they, they, they notice that I haven't written anything down. So they, and, and by the way, this is one of my students uh, by the way, so I have to be very careful about this, you know, interaction. Um, do you do you understand the exercise? Yeah, no, no, I think I understand. You know, we're talking about you know people that we might see as I was. Oh no, I get it. In fact, you know, look, I I know this person. They see me as so I get it. I got your concept. Uh, you know, whatever. And I'm I, you know I'm kind of pushing back. I'm feeling pretty good about myself sort of in the moment. And um, and then they they do something that was actually quite dangerous, and it was actually a great example of dangerous love towards me. Um, they said to me. So if I get, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that everybody you know in your life is in the box but you. Every single person in every relationship in your life is in the box with you. Is that right? Now, there was a dissonance that rose up within me right away. There, well, that's probably not true, <laughs> um, right? And, and, and the floodgates open and I recognize literally during that exercise, I was seeing every single person on that list as an object. And why did I resist that? Because I'm a conflict mediator. I'm a peace building teacher. How in the world could I have this problem? Because if I have this problem, it implicates something like incredibly deep. I'm a hypocrite and, and, and I don't want to be one. I'm right. And so that was really, really hard, you know, for me to see. And so I get it when leaders when leaders struggle with that. And so, you know, the, the, the other side of that is I worked with a government leader. It was actually a general, a military leader um, who, when they got this material, they actually decided that for the first six months, they weren't going to share this with anybody else within the organization because they said, I want to get to the point that people come to me and say, what's different about you? What, what, what's changed? What are you doing in the morning? Like what's going on with you? And when they recognize it in me without me saying a word, then I can slide a book across there. I can slide dangerous love across their desk and say, um, this book has changed me. And if you would like to read it, feel free um, to go to ha- go ahead. That implementation in that organization was dramatically different than the organization and the other persons. The other people resisted and said, oh, oh, see people's people. Well, let me tell you that my boss doesn't see me in this way, this way, this way. This person, 
I want to be like that. I want to work and live and be more um, like that person. And, and to me, what he did that I thought was so brilliant was he didn't put himself above everybody else. He actually, in some ways, put himself below everybody else and said, I can't ask of anything from my organization that I can't live personally um, in my life. And I'm not just going to theoretically say I'm going to commit to it. I am going to commit to it. It was multiple times a week conversations um, with him, coaching, walking through exercises, working on rewiring those neural pathways or whatever. And so, you know, one of the things that I would say to leaders about all of this is that all of those employees, all the people that you work with, all those customers, there's seeds that are going to get planted in your soil, right? Yes. And so instead of cultivating their soil um, for them, uh, right, or bringing in groundwork or other people to do it, the best way for that to take hold is when I'm cultivating it um, and, and accountable for it um, my, myself. And again, what is that? That's dangerous. Yes. Um, right? Because it means that I'm going to have to show vulnerability as a leader. I'm going to have to have weakness. The best leaders, and this is something I learned from the Arbinger Institute, um, when they hold accountability meetings, they first hold themselves accountable as a model to the rest of the organization, which means that I am quick to admit my mistakes. I'm quick, quick to uh, admit uh, my weaknesses and faults, that I own up to them. I take accountability for them without justification. And when I do so, um, other people within the organization recognize that when I fall short, um, my job is to hold myself accountable because that's the quickest way for the, the organization to actually turn things around. And, uh, and what often happens in organizations is the exact opposite. It's called the CYI, CYA, cover your butt, um, right? And the whole idea is that I'm trying to hide my mistakes and my weaknesses from everybody else in the organization. And where do I learn that from? I learned that from mom and dad. I learned that from, from our leaders. And, and I recognize that's a value within the organization. And, and, and so, again, this is scary work. Because the first time, hands trembling, and do I have time for another story? Yeah. I, t- I tell you, um, so remember I told you about that Arbinger experience. Um, I actually reached out to Jim Farrell, who was the author um, of Anatomy of Peace, who worked for the Arbinger Institute at that time, and told him about some of my experiences and um, told him I would like to implement this at the university level. I'd like to learn. I'd like to be a facilitator and whatever. And he was like really excited about it. At the time, I don't think there was another university that had, had really sort of taken this on. So he flies out to Hawaii and we're hanging out together. And he's like, can I attend your class? All right. All right. Tell me this story before. <laughs> Keep going. Sorry. And I told it on the podcast? No, no. Oh, just okay. to me before. Yeah. And so here's, here's this person I admire and that I want to impress. And I'm teaching a mediation class. And so I fill the mediation class. And by the way, it wasn't like I just had done it this time. This is what I was been my pattern. Telling about successful mediation. Telling them about, oh, I did this one and this turned out great. And I did this one, this turned out great. And then this one, this turned out great. And then every time I'm telling the story, I'm kind of looking you know, through the audience, you know, see if Jim, Jim's there, not, not in, whatever. I'm driving him home afterwards and we're you know, driving to the hotel. And um, he hasn't said a word about my, my lecture. He has literally not any feedback. I'm dying to know inside, like, are you okay? Are you impressed yet? Do you want to work with us? You know, whatever. And so finally, he's not saying anything. So finally, I'm like, hey, what'd you think of the, you know, the class, the lecture that we were in? And he said, oh, I, th- I thought it was really good. He's like, you know, but, but, you know, and I'm getting all defensive. He's like, 
And I was just thinking to myself, you know, cause I don't really know much about mediation. I'm Chad, to be honest, man, I don't think I could ever be a mediator the way that you could I'm like, well, Jim, what are your writers, a successful company? Why are you thinking? Well, I mean, you know, the, all the stories that you sold, you, you, you shared, like they were really complex mediations and like you made every great choice and like everything turned out like awesome. I'm like, man, I just, I don't know how big a curve it would be for me to be able to get there. And he's like, um, have you ever thought, I mean, this is, this is the gentle teaching of a master, right? Have you ever thought about ever sharing um, with students maybe a mediation that didn't go right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, you forgive me if it's a bad assumption, you know, that maybe you've had a mediation or two that hasn't gone right. And I'm like, yeah, uh, one or two, like try like more than 50% of my mediations have failed. Uh, even as I've gotten older, right? They, they, they don't, they don't all work. He's like, you know, that, that, that would be really helpful to me because it would help me understand that even if I'm making mistakes, I can learn from my mistakes. I can get better and everything else. So it's the next class and all of this is ringing in my ears and, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try to do this. Now these are 19, 20, 20 year olds, right? I'm the professor and I'm shaking in my, in, in my, in my uh, shoes up, up there thinking that I'm going to share something and what are they going to think of me? And they're going to think that I'm a failed mediator. Or people are going to talk about me behind my back sort of afterwards. I'm scared of my class now about what they'll think to me. And in that moment, I'm the worst possible teacher that I could possibly be because this is about us. This is about learning. This has nothing to do with me, but somehow I've made it completely about me. So I decided I'm going to share a story about a time that I fail. And, um, I back out of it like twice, like twice I'm like ready to go. And then I end up sort of diverting and, and doing another thing. And then I, then I finally tell it and the reaction like blew, blew me away. The reaction that I got for that was like, oh my gosh, that, that hit home for me. Oh, oh no, I get, get that principle now. Like no, people didn't judge me. People didn't walk out of that saying, oh my gosh, why is this our professor? It finally connected me to them at a vulnerable human level about what their biggest fear was about mediation was that I know that I'm going to mistake, make mistakes. I know I'm going to, I'm never going to be like professor Ford. And when I was able to come down off my high horse and be a person with them, which is who I was all along. And this is not who I was pretending to be. I'm at the moment. Everything started to change about uh, my teaching style. I'm still grateful for this day for that, for that telling. And you'll, you'll hear now in my podcast, in my book, a lot of the stories that I tell about myself aren't, don't portray me in the most positive light. Um, And I do that in part because I want people to recognize that we all make mistakes um, that I'm walking you through this journey, not because I perfected it, um, but because I still struggle to walk um, on this journey, um, just like everybody else. Yeah, it was, story. it was you, uh, it was you that taught me the principle of, you know, we share those bad stories about ourselves and they're hard, like you just explained, because we have to be vulnerable. Um, but you, it was you that taught me we, we need to be willing to go to that space to help people get there as well. Um well, you know, we got to, we got to close up, um, soon here. Um, but we've, you know, we've touched on a variety of, of different topics as it relates to, to dangerous love. Um, you know, the touchy filly sort of kumbaya fallacy. We've talked about leadership. We've talked about, you know, how it impacts results. Um, and, uh, and the opposite of, uh, you know, the destruction side of it. Um, you know, as you we were sharing uh, some of these, uh, pre- 
just recent principles. Um, you know, I couldn't help but, but think of an example of, of my experience, you know, um, understanding this idea of dangerous love, you know, that you, you taught me. And back when I was your student, we weren't using that language of dangerous right. love. Uh, but that's what I was, I was learning. And, you know, it was, it was, it was so enlightening to me, but it was all theoretical in a classroom. And then I got to apply it in different projects around campus. But even, even little teeny BYU Hawaii in Laie is, is a very small bubble. And so, you know, it was, it still felt kind of controlled and, and I was seeing really cool things happen and I was experiencing changes, changes myself, but it was still in this, in this bubble. And then, uh, I think it was my final semester. I had a couple back to back, um, uh, experiences, you know, helping, uh, work at this center and, and working with you. One of them I went with, I went with you on a trip and then the other one you weren't able to go. And so I went by myself, but the first one we went to was that WIAC conference, that international affairs mm-hmm. conference. And, and it was, uh, you know, we had, we had programs in conflict resolution, peace theory, et cetera. Most of them, actually all of them, except our program, graduate programs all came together. We had professors from all over, you know, uh, and there was roundtables, and we were taking on pretty heavy, you know, things like right, dynamics, conflict, ter- you know, uh, terrorism, and, and things like that nature. And how do we solve them? How do we fix them? And I, I remember that after the first day, I was very frustrated because everybody was talking about all these, you know, policies and things to create to fix it. And and everything that I was learning in the peace building program was was more the person, right? Let's, yeah. let's change. Let's, you know, I wasn't using the language, but let's love, let's change how we see, et cetera. And, and I remember venting to you at lunch and you said, Chris, this is, this is what you're going to be up against, right? As you go into other, you know, your graduate programs or into your profession is not, people don't always think this way. And it was challenging for me because I wanted people to think that way. And I was kind of turning a little, making it about me. Uh, but, and so I left that conference frustrated. You know, I, I left it frustrated and, and even doubting myself, like, look, if all these people and all these other programs don't believe that this is the way, you know, is, is Chad, is Chad just some sort of anomaly? You know, is, are his experience just, just, he's the crazy one. Yeah, I, I, is he, you know, I, I wasn't thinking crazy, but I'm like, is he just like some sort of special person that is able to see this happen? Because all these people seem to think that it, it doesn't work. And is BYU Hawaii just this special place where, where we're having these experiences and, and I was just having questions like that. Well, not too long after, about a, maybe a month to, or two after, I, I was able to go out on a project that we had actually been working on for an entire year, um, but it was, all, you know, it was all remote. And it was after the Ferguson you know, shooting. Um, you know, we, I was helping you on a project, getting all the right stakeholders together. And, and it was all emails and phone calls. And so finally, the, the plan was, look, we partner with Arbinger. We partner with Peace Players International. We're going to go into Kansas City. PD because they're a large police department that's, you know, not Ferguson, but close to it. And we're just going to, we're going to try something. And so let's, let's teach some Arbinger to some of these, uh, these, uh, these police officers, specifically in the PAL unit, the Police Athletic League. And then let's, let's uh, teach them peace players curriculum, meaning help them become coaches. And so that they can use these principles because peace players, you know, uses, and you know, this obviously, Chad, you, you, you help create the content, but they use, you know, Arbinger theory and how they coach basketball and sports. And so all of these different stakeholders would be brought to the table. And of course, I was part of that planning process. But a month after this WIAC, you know, this uh, international affairs conference that we went to, I'm going to this thing. And so now I'm getting to put into practice everything that I was, I was learning. And the whole time when I was there, I was thinking, you know, see people, see people, see people, see people, create a space, create a space, create a space. 
And again, I, I didn't know how to do it. This was one of my first, you know, on the ground experiences. We're working with the coaches all week, you know, just, just the coaches, which are police officers all week. We're going through the peace players curriculum and I was having great experiences with them. And, you know, I, my paradigm of police officers was even changing. Right. And then at the end of this week was a sports clinic. So we had all the pal kids and all these pal kids are inner city kids, pe- you know, kids of color that come together. And then we also invited Kansas City's police department uh, and their kids to attend. And it was this free sports clinic and there was news stations there and all sorts of things. It was this massive event, tons of people there. And I remember when the doors opened, it was chaotic. I mean, just kids running around everywhere. And actually, when we were able to corral them all, you know, the bleachers where there was this huge gap in between all the pal kids and the police officers and their kids, you could feel the tension in the air. It's real. And I'm seeing this and I'm thinking, okay, is what we're going to do, is what we're doing and what we plan for going to work? You know, are people going to see each other as people? And we start the, the drills and, and again, chaos loud everywhere. Nothing's going the way I wanted it to go. We start with these really simple pairing drills where, you know, you pair two kids up, they have to hold a ball, a basketball in between each other's hands and walk to a cone and say each other's name, you know, introduce themselves to each other. Older kids don't want to participate in this. It's kind of silly. You know, that's kind of a dumb thing for like older kids to do. They just want to play basketball, but they have to do it. And so none of these pal kids are, are participating. It's just the police officer's kids because their parents are on the sideline watching. And then some of the younger pal kids that don't have any clue what's going on. And so I'm getting frustrated personally thinking this doesn't work. This isn't going to work. But I'm in the back of my mind, keep trying, keep seeing, keep seeing. And I'm thinking of this is failing and we spent all this time and nothing's working. There's no, there's no connections. There's no interactions going on. This isn't, this isn't working. And so I'm running one of these pairing drills. Nobody wants to join. And uh, there's this little girl. She was one of the captain's uh, daughters, bright blonde hair just probably eight, nine years old, just, you know, young girl. She's just staring up at me waiting for her turn. And there's kids running around and nobody else is there to pair with her. And so I'm trying to wave down to some of these older pal kids, you know, these inner city kids from the bleachers, like, hey, come down here, help me out. And they're just laughing at me, kind of scoffing at me. And none of them want to to help. But then uh, one of them raises his hand and said, he'll come down. And just to paint the picture for you, who's about six, five, an African-American, just this tall young man, you know, he was, he was intimidating actually how tall he was to me, but he walks down and he says, I'll help. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, dude, don't you mess this up, right? Like this little girl is like, don't, don't ruin this. Her dad's watching is what I'm thinking in the back of my mind. And, uh, but he grabs the ball and, you know, they, he has to hold it pretty low, but they walk down to this cone, introducing themselves to one another. And then they actually, the next part of it, which we didn't get this far with any of the other kids, but the next part was you have to hold it in between your hip and you know, try to balance it in between your hip, which is hard to do, especially that he was, you know, five feet taller than her. And then, and so they, they're, they're trying that and, and they, they struggle, they get down there. And then the last one, you have to hold in between your foreheads and you have to, you know, kind of get in a defensive stance and go to this cone and back. And, uh, uh, and of course he has to squat way down and it, they're having trouble doing it, but they, they, they manage and, and they get back and I'm thinking, oh, they did it. And I'm like, was there cameras watching? Like somebody be watching this because this is this was great. This is a great shot, is what I'm thinking. And uh, and again, I'm still not fully grasping, you know, what the the whole purpose and this idea of dangerous love. I'm struggling with with this idea to to love. Right to me, it was this like if you're doing what I what I want you to do, then sure, this is going to work out great. And uh, and what happened after though? You know, I thought that was great that he did this. Okay, but what happened after? He taught me a lesson of what it meant to love dangerously. He also kind of put me in my place. Um, 
you know, after after this, this little girl, like young girls do, is you know she's shy. She ran to her dad, who was watching everything unfold. And the, this captain was in full attire, standing on the side, watching you know all of this unfold. So he he she runs to him and grabs her, her his legs in a in a big hug, like young girls do to their to their fathers. And and I thought, oh, that's a sweet moment. And then I turn around to say thank you to this young man, but he doesn't even look at me, doesn't even notice me, and he walks right past me. And he's just beelining it to this young girl, and she can't see him coming, but he just walks straight to her, doesn't even acknowledge her dad at first. He gets down on one knee, and he taps her on the shoulder. She turns around, and she's just bright red, you know, and he puts his hand up for a high five. And she doesn't give him a high five. She jumps up and hugs him around his neck. And uh, and now things start to change within, within me as I watch this. And, and he, he actually picks her up, and he holds her for a second. And they have a brief conversation. I have no idea what they're saying, but he's interacting with this with this girl. These two individuals that probably would have never met um, and seen each other in this way. You know, they have this moment. And then after that, after first acknowledging this girl, he he puts her down and then he reaches his hands out, hand out and shakes this um, police officer's hand. And they carry on a conversation for the next several minutes. For a moment in that chaotic gym with all the noise and chaos, there was this silence for me as I watched this. Um, and and everything that I had been learning, theoretically, this idea behind dangerous love, of course, we weren't using that language, but this this theory and this idea came to life for me as I watched that, um, that it is possible and that it happens one person at a time. And it was amazing. After that change in, in how I was seeing the whole evening, I started to notice those interactions happening all around me, where before I was blind to it because it was about me. Um, and so I was I was thinking of that example because it's not easy, right? We've talked about the the fear from of being touchy filly, the fear of, you know, the 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 misunderstandings that we might have when we hear the word love. Um, but my my own experience, you know, that set me on a on a trajectory to really believing in this principle of of loving dangerously, um, and and also understanding that it doesn't happen overnight. You know, I realized that in that moment that we spent months planning this this one instance for an an hour and a half, right? We spent months planning for an hour and a half space that they could be created. Um, and so, you know, one thing I, I want to, you know, thank you for those experiences that I've had, but I, I felt like, you know, a lot of the principles we've touched on to me, that that's what I kept thinking of because it was wrapping up, you know, these, these ideas, but with, you know, our last couple of minutes, uh, Chad, um, you know, what would be your message to knowing a little bit about what we're trying to do here? What would be your message to, to our leaders here and any other listeners? Cause we have, you know, that thousands of other people listening to this turns out, what would you say to them? Um, you know, with your final few words, uh, I actually think that's a beautiful story, um, to end on because if you think about some of the divide that exists in the U S today, and you take that particular, that little, that little story, you think about that young man and that, that young woman and, and her father and the interaction that happens I think anybody could see that and say, well, there's, if that could happen in, in all of these communities, you know, around something would change, right? If police officers could actually see the humanity of the people that they police, some of these major issues that, that we face in our world today would, would change. Right. Um, and and, and, and also if, if we could see the humanity of law enforcement officers, I mean, there's so many things where, where if that could happen, we could, we could 
see change, but then it seems so big, right? How are we going to get there? So here's one little event that Chris has takes a month to, to put together, but it's actually based off of years of work with peace players, with Arbinger, uh, with me at the McKay center, like all of the stuff that culminates and that culminates in this event. And what happens next though, is that event, um, sparks something within peace players, sparks something within several people in the community and ultimately ca- captures the attention of Nike, um, that, that one event. And Nike decides that they're going to take a, a significant portion of their charitable giving, which has typically been about getting kids to just run out and exercise and um, just promoting, promoting exercise. And let's be honest, promoting them as brand ambassadors for, for Nike. Um, and then in the wake of everything that's sort of happening in the world, and this is pre George Floyd, uh, wanting to do something more substantive in their communities and seeing this as a particular way with a particular institutional partner or what have you. And, and now, you know, that was probably about six, seven years ago. There are full programs running in Brooklyn, in Detroit, in Baltimore, I'm in Chicago, I'm in Los Angeles um, right now, all because of this little pilot um, sort of moment that happens. And so part of it is what, um, John Paul Lederach refers to as the moral imagination and this idea that often we resort to violence because we can't imagine other alternatives to sort of making change. And so violence becomes the, 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 uh, just the, the sort of background noise that, that exists in the world that what, what leaders need to be able to do is envision a world where people see each other that way and then dive all the way back down to the nitty gritty about thinking about what is one space that I could create. And even if it had just been out of the hundred people that was there, those three individuals that, that make a change, each of those people become ripple effects um, in, the, in the reaction. One of those is a police officer that goes back to his police force with a story and a changed view um, of a young man that he had before. Um, one is a young girl who goes back into her neighborhood and her community with a changed view. One is this young man who's gone um, through this experience and has this sort of changed view. And one of the things that 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 I've learned um, in this process, and you know, Chris, we've talked about you know this before. When I first started doing some work with peace players and young girls, my first group was this group of twelve-year-old girls. Um, and you wonder how in the world are these twelve-year-old girls from this little village going to actually sort of make a difference in the world? And, and I lack the vision that someone else within the organization had um, is that every time I interact with someone this way, every time I, I, I practice dangerous love and see someone like that, the ripple effects go way beyond what I can sort of see and contemplate. And so the, there's no such thing as big peace. It's all small. It's all deliberate. It all comes in every interaction that we have. And so my, my advice to leaders or anybody that wants to be part of a solution instead of a problem is don't get caught up with how are we going to change the interaction between African-Americans and police officers in the United States. Don't start with that question. Start with the question of how could I help change an interaction with myself and others and my family and other people around me and the community and the influence that I have today. Create that space and then grow that space and then look and find ways to continue to grow 
and grow that space. And, and a story that you told seven years ago, I don't think you would have imagined today uh, that there would be peace players in all of these organizations, that there'd literally be hundreds of kids that are now uh, impacting on that, that one of them would win an ESPN um, sportsmanship uh, uh, international award. One of these young um, people um, that were, were part of that now and that that growing generation is now starting to become the leaders that are going to have deep, deep impacts in the roots of their communities. And so it starts small. Um, and, and, and one of my favorite lines I use this in the book is by small and simple things, great things come to pass. And if we can just embrace that and do something small, like those seeds, they're small, they grow into something really big. Yeah. Well said. Um, and that would be, you know, my, my invitation to listeners, you know, today is what's something small that you can do, um, you know, right now in your relationships, whether it's personally in your, your families, you know, your, your friend, your friendships, um, and your organizations, um, what's something small that you can start to do today to, to, to make a change. Um, and, uh, we, we got to wrap up. We actually got to make it over to our, uh, you know, our, our leadership, uh, uh, session, uh, here with our leaders. Salam, any last words before we wrap up? I just want to say thank you to Chad. Um, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for writing the book. I mean, I, I read the book. I'm still, there are sections of it I want to go through again, but um, you have given me uh, a new insights, if you will, and a whole new perspective of, you know, of looking at the content, this wonderful content of this book. And, um, and I just appreciate you and appreciate you coming all the way to Salem and spending time with us and the cohort that we're going to see today. And it's just a, a really excellent reminder that that we are also seeds. We are seeds of change, so to speak. And, and the change that we're hoping to accomplish starts with us. And I have to be the first one to turn. I have to be the first one to take that step. And that requires a lot of courage. And, uh, and courage is rare these days. But from a leadership perspective, I think it's essential. So thank you so much. Thank you, Salam. Thanks, Chad. Um, and everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is another episode on the Rooted Leadership Podcast. Until next time, stay safe um, and uh, take care. <laughs>